Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about a video game company that we haven't talked about in quite some time. And that is the Valve Corporation, or more specifically, their Steam software platform. If you play games on the computer, chances are you're familiar with Steam. It is the dominant platform in the PC gaming community. And quite frankly, it's that dominance that maybe led to some of the problems we're going to be talking about today. Now, before we do, I want to mention that this channel is supported by viewers and listeners like you. We've got most prominently a Utreon support channel. If you do check that out, more of your support dollars will come to the channel. We also, of course, have Patreon, which itself is the dominant platform in crowdsource support. Please use either at your discretion. If you do, one of the tiers in that support platform will allow you to sponsor a specific video per month. Today, we give special thanks to Falkus Vipus, who has been supporting this channel for months and months and months and months and months. And thank you very much for Falkus Vipus for supporting this episode of Virtual Legality. Now, it was early last year in Virtual Legality where we first talked about the lawsuits that were consolidating against Valve and their Steam platform. Now, the primary method that was argued in these lawsuits was that Steam, through the use of what's called a most favored nation pricing provision, was somehow keeping prices up and hurting consumers and publishers. We discussed it at length in that video. In fact, we discussed it looking at one of the cases that was filed going deep into it. You can check it out. I will link it in the description to this video. But through the magic of class actions and multiple lawsuits being filed at once, these got consolidated, spun around, and ultimately the lead plaintiff right this second on this case is a company by the name of Wolfire Games. Welcome to Wolfire Games, says their website. At Wolfire, our mission is to push the video game industry forward by challenging conventional wisdom, sharing what we learn, and exploring the positive effects that games can have on the world. Very noble ambition there. But right now, it is realized most prominently by a lawsuit, as many noble ambitions are. Now, if we look at the overview here, we're not going to go through this whole document. It's like 78 pages long, and it largely copies the document that we looked at in that earlier video. But for purposes of this conversation, we do have to talk about a few things. First, the main issue in this lawsuit is Valve's 30% cut. If that sounds familiar to you, if it sounds exactly like Apple versus Epic or Epic versus Android or any of a host of things that are being looked at in various legislatures and lawsuits around the land, well, it should. The 30% cut of digital storefronts is being attacked on all sides and Valve was added to that list early last year. Paragraph three from the complaint says Valve is able to exact, exact such high fees because it actively suppresses competition to protect its market dominance. Many other game stores have tried to charge lower fees in the range of 10 or 15%, but they have all failed to achieve significant market share. This is because Valve abuses its market power to ensure game publishers have no choice but to sell most of their games through the Steam store, where they are subject to Valve's 30% toll, just like Apple's 30% tax in Epic parlance. If a game publisher wants to sell games that are enabled for the Steam game platform, Valve requires the publisher to sell the vast majority of its games through Valve's Steam Store, and when the game publisher sells through the Steam Store, Valve takes its 30% cut of nearly every sale. One theory of the case that Wolfire advanced here was that there were effectively two different products that were tied together. One was the game platform on which you play Steam games, and the other was the storefront in which you buy 
Steam games, or as they describe it here, there are in fact two separate components to Steam. The Steam gaming platform where their games are played and the Steam store where their games are bought and sold. And it was based on this thesis of the case that they said, well, that most favored nation pricing concept was allowing Valve to up jump the costs of PC video gaming across the entire sector because nobody could go and create a competitor to them and they illegally tied together two products in their game platform and their storefront in a way that helped perpetuate their monopoly power. Now, there's some interesting things that pop out of that. I've talked about these in other videos here in Virtual Legality, the first and foremost of which is you can argue whether this is a fulsome, most favored nation provision or not. We've pulled up the partner Steam Games feature keys website here. It says you should use keys to sell your game on other stores in a similar way to how you sell your game on Steam. It is important that you don't give Steam customers a worse deal, which admittedly sounds like a most favored nation clause. It's okay, they note, however, to run a discount on different stores at different times as long as you plan to give a comparable offer to Steam customers within a reasonable amount of time. And keep in mind that the perceived price in the bundle subscription should be a price you are willing to run the game at a standalone price or discount on Steam. They further say, hey, we reserve the right to not allow you to use Steam keys to otherwise terminate various things if we decide that you're abusing this generosity, this largesse that Valve has bestowed upon you. But it's a fairly weak sauce kind of most favored nation provision. When I'm writing contracts in a commercial setting, these can look a lot more fulsome with bigger and bigger penalties. But I think that the plaintiffs in this particular case are right to suggest that it does mean that you have to be very, very careful with what you are doing on other storefronts. Now, after a little bit of legal wrangling, it was this past week that we saw a very interesting update to this particular case. As summarized by Bloomberg Law here, Valve loses bid to end antitrust case over Steam gaming platform. That's a pretty big headline. I read through the article, but I don't think it's as useful as I often don't here in virtual legality to do anything but look at the primary source material, which is exactly what we're going to do. So what happened in this document? Why in some places where this is being reported, is it perhaps being overly reported a little bit? And why should Valve actually be concerned about where this could be going? So this document, which is only eight pages long, we're gonna go through pretty fulsomely, says the following. This matter comes before the court on defendant's motion to dismiss. This is very, very important. You might see this reported on in various places, what we're about to talk about in this document, as evidence having been provided, as someone saying that something was proved, that this particular court case was allowed because the judge or the court believes in its veracity, believes in the truthfulness of the matters asserted by the plaintiffs here. That could not be further from the truth. And I'm going to highlight the language that shows it in this document. Suffice it to say, this is one of the earliest things that happens in a litigation. Essentially, the plaintiffs put together that big 80-page document that I didn't summarize for you, but you can see a version of in that earlier video. And they say, if you believe this is true, court, you have to allow us to continue with our litigation so that we can engage in discovery. We can actually go find the evidence of these various things. We can have a court system trial just like you or I might be expecting. But the defendant can instead say, Look, court, even if you take everything they said as true, this isn't actually illegal. The law has no form of redress for what they have even put forth in this document. And if the court agrees with that assertion, it gets kicked out before any of the other problems might otherwise arise. But in so doing, the court assumes that what was pled, what was put in that earlier document, 
is true. So what this document is actually looking at from a standard basis is the court saying, okay, if everything you said in your document is true, is this a legitimate antitrust case? And in a couple of key places here, they find that it might be, but that's not a finding of evidence. It's really just the start of any litigatory process. So with that in mind, let's take a look at what the court says here. So the background. First of all, this is a motion to dismiss plaintiff's second amended consolidated class action, which they call an SAC here. That's the second one. They've already gone through a process of amending their complaint document. The court previously dismissed Plaintiff Wolf Fire Games Sherman Act, that's the Antitrust Act here in the United States, and Washington Consumer Protection Act claims as alleged in plaintiff's amended class action complaint. That's the CAC. Lawyers are not great at necessarily picking out definitions that are easily distinguished, but for our purposes, the CAC is the first one and the SAC is the second one. The CAC got kicked out of court for failing to plead adequately, and the SAC is going to find some success here because they changed some things around. Or as the court describes it, the court dismissed the complaint, that's the CAC, concluding that the CAC failed to plausibly allege that game publishers suffer price and non-price-based injury from defendants' antitrust conduct. Failed to plausibly allege. That's the standard. The court also found that the CAC did not support Wolfire's preferred market theory, that the Steam Store and Steam Platform are separate products offered in separate markets, which defendant unlawfully ties together. And you know tying here if you followed us along for Apple versus Epic, but suffice to say, if you take one product and you attach it to another product and you say you can only buy this product as long as you buy both together, that's an illegal tying action under American antitrust law because as you can imagine, it would be easy enough for some kind of seller to say, here, take our crap product with our good one and you can only get the good one if you buy the crappy one. And that could be a problem for trade in the United States. However, the court granted plaintiffs leave to amend. So they say, all right, this isn't good enough. Your CIC isn't good enough. Go write it again. Go try that term paper again and come back to us. And they have done just that. The SAC does not provide new causes of action or completely new factual allegations. Rather, it provides additional context to the CAC's allegations. So they went home. They said, all right, we're going to work on this paper. But they didn't go and start it from scratch. They said they need a little bit of filler. They need to understand things. They need a little bit more context around some of these things. They came back with the Second Amendment complaint, and the court actually agreed with some of it. And I say agreed, meaning it's allowed to proceed, not that they found anything on an evidentiary level. Wolfire, that's the plaintiffs, contends that these additional facts bolster the following arguments. A, the Steam Store and Steam Platform are distinct products which operate in distinct product markets which defendant unlawfully ties. B, defendant unlawfully imposes an anti-competitive platform most favored nation requirement on game publishers. And that's PMFN. I just call it an MFN usually, but that's fine. C, Plaintiffs' resulting price-based injuries are distinguishable from those rejected by the Ninth Circuit in Summers, and we'll take a look at that in a second. And D, plaintiffs plausibly allege non-price-based injuries in the form of reduced game output and quality. Going from that overview, this document is then going to be divided into roughly three parts. The first of which is the legal standard, the second of which is about the markets, the tying, whether there are two products within Steam as a whole, and the third is the antitrust concept, the most favored nation provision. So we start with the legal standard. To support an antitrust claim, a plaintiff must allege, one, unlawful conduct. Makes sense. We don't really want to prosecute people that don't engage in unlawful conduct. Two, that conduct causes an injury to the plaintiff. Three, that injury flows from that which makes the conduct unlawful. And four, 
it's the type of issue that the antitrust laws were intended to prevent. So four basic things that a plaintiff has to put in that big, long document. A defendant may move for dismissal of an antitrust complaint like any other when a plaintiff fails to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. The plaintiff, your honor, just failed to say anything that the law actually covers here. Even if you were to accept everything they said is true, there is no there there. To survive such a motion, the complaint must contain sufficient factual matter, except it is true, except it is true by the court. Court's not doing a further inquiry. There's nothing to inquire about. It's just looking at two term papers to state a claim for relief that is plausible on its face. A claim has that facial plausibility when the plaintiff pleads factual content that allows the court to draw the reasonable inference that the defendant is liable for the misconduct alleged. So if we just take it as true, what you just said, hey, that would be the kind of defendant that probably would be liable. To do so, a plaintiff must provide grounds for entitlement to relief that amount to more than labels and conclusions or a formulaic recitation of the elements of a cause of action. Said another way, if you put this document together and you have the legal standard here and you just have paragraph one, the defendant engaged in unlawful conduct. Paragraph two, that unlawful conduct caused us an injury. Paragraph three, uh, the unlawful conduct uh, caused the injury. It flowed from that uh, unlawfulness. And four, it's exactly what you're usually looking for when you interpret antitrust laws, your honor. That isn't going to suffice. You can't just recite what the law asks for. You have to talk about your specific facts and circumstances in more than just a formulaic resuscitation of the elements of a cause of action. Now, although the court must accept as true a complaint's well-pleaded facts, that's the key here. Court has to accept as true what is said using the form and manner that the law requires. Conclusory allegations of law and unwarranted inferences will not defeat an otherwise proper motion to dismiss. So that's the standard. As we talked about at the top, court says we accept everything is true from the plaintiffs. What does that mean? Well, first and foremost, it means they didn't make their market case. As the court says, plaintiffs first through fourth causes of action rest on the theory that the Steam platform and Steam store operate in separate markets, while plaintiffs' fifth through eighth causes of action rest on the theory that defendant competes in a single integrated game platform and transaction market. Not great when the court defines your two as essentially mutually exclusive. Defendant argues that plaintiff's separate market theory is facially unsustainable. For the reasons outlined below, the court agrees. So one thing that isn't in that headline, one thing you might not see reported on, is actually perhaps the more important part of this document everything related to the platform and the store being separate markets is kicked out. And we'll see at the bottom of this document is kicked out with prejudice, meaning they can no longer go back and change their term paper. The court says you failed twice. We see no way that you would actually succeed in this. So we're kicking them all out. That is one market. First, the court establishes how it determined that. A facially plausible product market is one that encompasses the product at issue as well as all economic substitutes for the product. Here, the commercial realities alleged in this second complaint undercut plaintiff's separate market theory. Plaintiff's facts show that commercial viability for a platform is possible only when it generates revenue from a linked game store. Plaintiffs do not allege that any game platform charges the direct fee for its use. Put another way, plaintiffs allege no economic substitute for Steam that does not finance its platform through game store purchases. Therefore, plaintiff's separate market theory is facially implausible. In other words, the court comes out and says, you could find no instance 
where somebody is making money through the platform itself, the use of play rather than selling games, rather than having a storefront associated with the mechanism through which one might play. So this two separate markets concept is hokum and the court kicks it out with prejudice. Tying, very similar. If you don't have two markets, you don't have two products, can't win on a tying claim. In addition to pleading the existence of separate markets, plaintiffs bringing tying claims must also plausibly allege the defendant linked two distinct markets for products that were distinguishable in the eyes of buyers. And this court previously dismissed plaintiffs tying claims because they failed to plausibly allege that the Steam Store and Steam Platform were separate in the eyes of the relevant consumer. Here, game publishers. Given the lack of allegations supporting a demand for fully functioning game platforms distinct from stores, the SAC, like the CAC, fails to plausibly allege that the Steam Store and Steam Platform are two separate products. And on this basis, the CAC, the SAC, fails to state an antitrust violation based on tying. So all wins for Valve and Steam so far in this document. But while you might feel safe at page six of eight, Valve actually loses the rest of the court's findings. Putting aside the tying allegations, or the trying allegations, maybe the court's feeling a little tired, the CAC also alleged that defendant utilizes a most favored nation regime to support its anti-competitive objectives. The court did not address this argument at the CAC level because it concluded that the CAC failed to allege antitrust injury and that that was dispositive. Remembering the legal standard, you have to show an injury that flows from unlawful conduct. They say the first document, which again, we didn't summarize because it's not important to what's happening right here, failed to do that, but that the SAC corrects for that issue. Most favored nation restraints, such as those allegedly utilized by defendant, are unlawful if used to further anti-competitive goals. And we'll talk very briefly about this at the end of the video. According to the SAC, defendant imposes a most favored nation regime to non-Steam enabled games to, quote unquote, prevent price competition from rival storefronts, resulting in higher prices for those games and less competition in the broader PC game distribution market. You can see what they're thinking there, right? If you prevent anybody else from really undercutting you on price, then you can maintain your large market share and that could be deemed anti-competitive. Defendant allegedly enforces this regime through a combination of written and unwritten rules. According to the SAC, defendant relies on provisions within Steamworks documentation, ones like the ones we looked at, to impose conditions on how non-Steam enabled games are sold and priced. Defendant also threatens game publishers with punitive action, including removal of their Steam enabled games if they sell non-Steam enabled versions of those games at lower prices. For example, a Steam account manager informed Plaintiff Wolfire that it would delist any games available for sale at a lower price elsewhere, whether or not using Steam keys. And if the SAC is to be believed, this experience is not unique to Wolfire. These allegations are sufficient to plausibly allege unlawful conduct. That is so key to what is happening here. They are sufficient, if taken as true, which the court has to at this level of motion, if taken as true, they plausibly allege something that could be unlawful conduct. Because what did they actually allege? They allege that they're using a most favored nation status for the purpose of illegally preventing price competition. Now, if you think to yourself, well, maybe Steam could argue that they're using most favored nation status as effectively a negotiating tool to be competitive, to make sure that their rates are always at the same level as what might be their competition. And that should be seen as efficient and pro-competitive. Well, you should expect that Valve will counter with exactly that argument, but it will counter it moving forward in the litigation phase rather than seeing this end at this motion to dismiss phase. But it doesn't mean anything has been proven. The court has to accept everything the plaintiffs say is true at this level. 
Which brings us to injury, right? You saw reference to a case called Summers, and here the court has to distinguish that case in order to find injury. It says, the court previously indicated that based on its interpretation of the holding in Summers, an unlawful antitrust injury predicated on the payment of a supra-competitive fee cannot be plausibly alleged if that fee remains the same when a defendant did and did not have market power. So you heard me talk about this with respect to Apple versus Epic, but one of the biggest issues in Epic bringing that claim was that Apple didn't move its price around. Apple had its 30%, Apple had its rules and conditions, and it didn't change it from when it was little to when it was big. Here, the court says that's basically what Summers, this precedent says. It says, if you had the same rules when you were little, before you had market power, and the same rules after, it's very difficult to find an unlawful action because in general, the law doesn't require you to to stop doing whatever you're doing, to go backwards as you gain market power. According to the CAC, remember that's the first complaint, with the exception of certain recent volume discounts, defendant always charged the same fee to game publishers, including when the PC desktop game digital distribution market was in a fledgling stage, even though defendant did not become dominant in the market until 2013. On this basis, the court found that defendants allegedly super competitive fees could not result in price-based antitrust injury. So that's the original finding. That's how the court kicks it out. But the court says, The SAC, this new second complaint, provides needed context. According to the SAC, defendant acquired the World Opponent Network gaming platform in 2001 and shut it down a few years later, forcing gamers onto the Steam platform, making Steam instantly a must-have platform. This denotes market power earlier on than described in the CAC. Now here you might have your own complaints, right? If you're not familiar with the World Opponent Network or the history here, or maybe if you are familiar with it, where you find someone saying that that makes Steam an instantly must-have platform as somewhat implausible. If we look at the history here, we see Sierra, Sierra Games, old-timey game company, was purchased by Havas in January 1999, and Sendent Software was acquired by Havas, who would then maintain this particular network. In March 2000, Havas merged OneNet with Prize Central Net to form Flipside.com. Ah, the dot-com boom. In 2001, Valve acquired one from Flipside and then began to implement the Steam system in beta form. It was used as the structural scaffolding. Valve shut down the last of its WAN servers on July 31st, 2004, and all online portions of Valve's games were transferred to their own Steam system, including Half-Life and Counter-Strike and these various things. But I have to admit, As a video gamer, that's only a portion of what the market actually was at that point in time. But the court has to take this as true, right? So the SAC comes in and says, well, actually, when you set up your 30%, you were already a dominant market because people really had to play Counter-Strike and they had no choice. Gamers were forced onto the Steam platform. The court says, well, I mean, if that's true then that looks like power earlier than we thought. And we find ourselves outside of Summers because we no longer have that non-market dominant to market dominant question. Also, the court says, while both complaints indicate that in those early days, defendant was competing against brick and mortar game distributors, the SAC makes it clear that defendant did not need market power to charge a fee well above its cost structure because those brick and mortar competitors had a far higher cost structure. And that's used effectively to say there's a reason why they were allowed to charge more. And again, that might not hold water at the end of the day when you bring in economists and otherwise fight this out because 
brick and mortar and PC digital were in a competitive market at the time. But the court has to take it as true. The court says, okay, this, the SAC says, well, you effectively used brick and mortar costing to allow yourselves to get more money than you otherwise could. And then you just didn't change it back when brick and mortar ceased becoming a competitor. Therefore, the court says, based on the allegations contained in the SAC, just based on allegations, not evidence, the court now concludes that Summers is not controlling. Because of this, because they had market power in 2004, because brick and mortar existed at the time to allow for a higher percentage than otherwise could have existed, absent that limitation, without Summers doing anything, plaintiffs have now plausibly alleged price-based injury. Plausibly. Conclusion, for the foregoing reasons, defendant's motion to dismiss the SEC is granted in part and denied in part. So they're allowed to move forward with this most favored nation is a problem strategy. But the first through fourth causes of action and the portion of the seventh cause of action predicated on separate markets and illegal tying are dismissed with prejudice as further amendment would appear futile. And you get a footnote for that. Because plaintiffs have been unable to cure their defective claims based on separate markets and tying, and it appears clear to the court that further amendment would be futile, the claims are dismissed with prejudice and without further leave to amend. They are done, they are out, and now all that is left is this most favored nation discussion. Unfortunately for Valve, most favored nation is one of those areas where we don't really know how a court might interpret it. As an example, I've pulled up here a law firm's website entitled Confusion Continues in the Antitrust Evaluation of Most Favored Nation Provisions. Most Favored Nation Provisions and dealings between buyers and sellers most often are used by a buyer to require sellers to agree that they will offer the buyer the lowest price offered to other buyers and used by a seller to require buyers to agree that they will buy from the seller at the highest price they pay other sellers. Now we're dealing with the first one here. This is a buyer of services in Steam that says, hey, if you're going to offer lower prices, you're going to offer them to us as well. U.S. developments, horizontal agreements among competitors. Imagine Steam and GOG to ensure that each obtains the most favorable price obtained by any of them have been challenged successfully as per se unlawful, unlawful on their face in the United States. But we're not dealing with horizontal agreements. We're dealing with what we would call vertical agreements. This is a platform negotiating with content providers to that platform, not with some kind of competing platform. Strictly vertical, most favored nation pricing provisions are commonplace. They indeed are, I can tell you that, and have been of antitrust concern only when they involve a buyer or seller with market power or monopoly power. There have been mixed results in private suits challenging MFNs imposed on sellers by dominant buyers. The circuit court decisions rejecting MFN suits against power buyers are quite strongly written. The First Circuit ruled in 1984 that a dominant healthcare insurance company did not violate the Sherman Act by imposing MFNs, assuring that healthcare providers would provide their healthcare services to the defendant insurer at the lowest price offered to other insurers. The court concluded that the MFNs merely assured that the insurer could attract more subscribers because it could charge them lower insurance premiums. In general, this is the kind of thing that we primarily look at in the United States as pro-competitive, that you put these things in place so that you make sure that you can compete with whoever might be a horizontal competitor to your market interest. Similarly, in 1995, the Seventh Circuit, in a decision authored by Judge Richard Posner, concluded that a medical clinic's MFNs and its agreements with affiliated physicians did not violate either Section 1 or Section 2 of the Sherman Act because the clinic lacked monopsony power in the relevant market and the arrangements were not anti-competitive. They weren't the only buyer, right? Is Steam the only buyer? That could be a question. The court declared that such provisions are standard devices by which buyers try to bargain for lower prices 
and as such are the sort of conduct that the antitrust laws seek to encourage. Acknowledging, however, that the DOJ, the Department of Justice, believe that such provisions are misused to anti-competitive ends in some cases. Very often, these kinds of horizontal mergers where competitors are talking to each other. Now, that's not dispositive. As we've talked about with respect to other antitrust type actions like Microsoft versus Activision, we do know that the Federal Trade Commission is actively looking at potentially enforcing antitrust laws on a more severe basis. And that the Federal Trade Commission has been looking at these things for a fairly long time. Here's a report just at uh, random from September of 2012. Now, a very long time in the digital landscape of a decade, but you see here them discussing the legal framework for evaluating MFNs under antitrust laws. You have all sorts of things here, but one of them is, hey, how do we evaluate the pros versus the cons of these kinds of things? Looking at efficiencies, looking at what these kinds of provisions actually get buyers and when that crosses over the line into anti-competitive behavior. I'll link this in the description, not that it's terribly useful as a PowerPoint, I'm just using it to point out that the Federal Trade Commission is looking at these things. But in this particular environment, with an FTC that wants to be more active, with all of the politics going around, the court isn't going to be unaware of that happening with respect to antitrust laws. So it will be interesting to see if this proceeds further when in a different environment, what you see from Steam with a fairly lightly worded MFN to keep their supplier prices as low as possible to better compete with their platform side competitors doesn't really raise even a yellow flag under most normal antitrust analysis. I can't guarantee anything, but I would still suspect Valve and Steam will win if antitrust precedent stays pretty much the same as it always has. Is that going to be the case? Well, reasonable minds can differ on that. You'll just have to stay tuned to Virtual Legality to help find out. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoy conversations of business and law, pop culture, tech, software, and more, please, as I mentioned at the top, consider supporting the channel through Utreon or Patreon, as Falkus Vipus has done. Thank you so much, Falkus Vipus. Or otherwise, just subscribing, telling your friends, ringing bells, engaging with the content on this channel. Every little bit helps us grow. And grow we have as we've engaged in a little bit of extra materials. Now we're having live streams uh, with fellow lawyers on YouTube. You can check those out as well. We're at almost 82,000 subscribers. So I'm pretty excited about the growth of the channel. All of that is because of viewers and listeners like you. Thank you so much. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.